Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Over a two-year span from 1969 to 1971, five people were murdered in the Renton area. For those of you who aren't familiar with Washington, Renton is about a 20-minute drive south from Seattle. In 1969, the population in Renton was about 18,000. Majority of the people living in Renton at the time were employed at the Boeing plant. The plant remains open for operation to this day and still employs over 12,000 workers. On December 16, 1969, Edward Stewart was out for a walk when he came across a mostly naked body near the Cedar River. The body was female, and Stewart could see that the woman was deceased. He immediately called police to report what he'd found. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, the Renton Police Department didn't have a homicide unit. It was a small town back then. The population has since grown to over 100,000. So, of course, the Renton PD was a smaller-scale force with only about five or six detectives working on various criminal cases. When police got to the scene, they found drag marks leading from the trail Stewart was walking on to the body. There were no signs of a struggle anywhere along the trail. This led detectives to believe that the woman was either unconscious or already dead by the time the killer brought her down to the river. The woman was naked from the waist down, other than a pair of white tights that she was still wearing. Her legs were spread apart. She was wearing a gold sweater, which had been pulled up so you could see her bra. The woman's underwear and jeans were found nearby, as well as one of her shoes. The other shoe was found where the drag marks started. Both shoelaces were missing from her shoes and were found discarded near the woman's body. The woman had two distinct ligature marks on her neck a sign of strangulation, and police thought the shoelaces could be the murder weapon. The woman also had a stab wound in the middle of her back, but there was no knife found at the scene. Officers emptied the woman's pants pockets and found her driver's license. The deceased woman was Carol Adele Erickson. Among the possessions found with the body were a manila envelope with various recipes written on notebook paper, and a letter Carol wrote to a man named Dan Kingen. Carol's parents had to identify their daughter's body at the county morgue. 19-year-old Carol Erickson had graduated from high school one year before her death. She was living in her own apartment and was taking culinary arts classes at Renton Vocational College. Carol worked at Kingsen's Restaurant, which was conveniently located right next to her apartment. She was dating a man named John Wilcox, who lived in the same apartment building. Wilcox worked as a chef in the clubhouse of the Maplewood Golf Course. When police spoke with Wilcox, he told them he'd gotten into an argument with Carol the night before. Carol wanted a more serious relationship, one that was headed toward marriage, but John wasn't ready for that big of a commitment. Wilcox and Carol met at Renton Vocational College in September and started dating in January. Despite Carol being deceased, Wilcox had a lot of bad things to say about her. 
he called her overly possessive, a little high-strung, and according to Wilcox, Carol demanded a lot of attention, which sounds like he thought she was high-maintenance. Wilcox last saw Carol around 11.30 in the morning of December 15th after he gave her a ride from school to her job at King's Inns. By the time Carol got out of Wilkes's car, she was crying, clearly very upset by their conversation on commitment. Police also interviewed Carol's roommate, Bonnie Holmes. Holmes went to school in Seattle and worked at an employment office. She had known Carol for over 15 years. The two had met through church. Holmes also confirmed Carol and Wilcox had been arguing quite a bit over the last three months. The last time Holmes saw Carol was around 6.45 a.m. on December 15th. Carol later left a note for Holmes, telling her that she was going to the library to work on a project for school. Holmes was worried when Carol hadn't come home by the next morning. She got in touch with Wilcox, who also hadn't seen Carol since he dropped her off for work. But despite both Holmes and Wilcox supposedly being worried about where Carol was, I couldn't find anything that said either of them filed a missing persons report. Holmes and Wilcox gave police the name of Carol's ex-boyfriend, Jim Williams. According to Holmes, Carol and Williams broke up when he joined the military. When Williams came back, he was very upset when he found out Carol had moved on to a new boyfriend. Holmes also told police that Williams and his friend Don Collier had dropped by her apartment on December 15th looking for Carol. The two men waited for Carol to come home, but when she didn't, they left around 10 p.m. But Collier and Williams weren't the only two men looking for Carol on the night she disappeared. A man named Jim Mount also stopped by the apartment. When he found out Carol was at the library, he went to look for her there, but after having no luck finding her, Mount went back to Carol's apartment and waited for her to come home until around 9.15 p.m. It's unclear what Mount, Williams, and Collier wanted from Carol, but, at least according to the men, they never made contact with Carol that night. An autopsy was performed on Carol shortly after her body was found. The autopsy revealed evidence that Carol was sexually assaulted. The coroner examined the stab wound more closely. The stab wound had penetrated Carol's back at a downward angle, severing her seventh rib and pushing a large fragment of bone into the pleural cavity around her lungs, causing penetration to the lower lobe of Carol's right lung. The stab wound itself was six inches, or 15 millimeters, deep, which led the coroner to rule that the stab wound had been fatal. Even though police had Carol's clothing and shoelaces, they didn't have the murder weapon, the knife, and DNA testing wasn't a thing in the 70s. According to their statements, Wilcox, Williams, and Collier all had alibis for the time of the murder, ruling them out as suspects. So that left police with two options. Either the killer was someone Carol knew, and they just hadn't spoken to that person yet, or Carol didn't know her killer at all, which would make solving her murder incredibly difficult. It's unsettling to think that there's a murderer in your community, but it's even more unsettling when the killer claims more than one victim. On September 19, 1970, a little less than one year since Carol's murder, 
17-year-old Joanne Marie Zuloff went for a walk in her neighborhood and never came home. She told her parents she'd only be gone for 10 minutes. Joanne and her family, which included Brother John, Mother Virginia, and Stepfather Ralph, lived in a quiet neighborhood just outside Renton. On the evening of her disappearance, Joanne had made plans to go for a bike ride with one of her friends after dinner. It was between dinner and the bike ride that Joanne had gotten restless and decided to take a walk. When she didn't come home, her family was worried. First, they called her friend Robbie Williams to see if Joanne had headed over there to ride bikes. But when Williams told Joanne's mother she hadn't come by, Ralph got in his truck and started driving around the neighborhood looking for any sign of Joanne. When he came back empty-handed, Ralph came back home, picked up Virginia, and the two started searching a wooded area near their house. They saw a man leaving the wooded area at the same time, but they didn't think much of it. When Joanne still hadn't come home by 10.30 that night, Virginia and Ralph called the Kings County Sheriff's Office. The operator took the family's information, but she also told the family that teenagers go missing all the time. The operator told the family to call back if Joanne hadn't returned in a day or so. Joanne's parents tried calling police again the next day after she still wasn't home. It wasn't until 3.30 that afternoon that a sheriff finally came to Joanne's house. Police talked to Robbie Williams, who told them they were supposed to go on a bike ride, but Joanne never showed up. This wasn't a typical runaway case to investigators. Joanne didn't have any problems with her parents. She left her purse and glasses behind. She didn't dress in warm clothes despite the cold temperatures, and she made plans for the bike ride. All things that didn't point in the direction of a runaway case to police. They found a witness in the neighborhood, Donald Hodges, who told police that he saw Joanne walk past his house on the night she went missing. He saw her walking along a trail in the woods. These are the same woods that Ralph and Virginia had searched the day before. Search and rescue teams were brought to the area with search dogs around 6.30 p.m. It sounds like the wooded area was fairly dense, and police didn't want to leave any stone unturned when it came to finding Joanne. Nearly 36 hours after Joanne went missing, her nude body was found by searchers on September 22, 1970. There were no visible wounds on Joanne's body, but police did find ligature marks on her throat. Joanne's body had been dragged from the trail to the dump site where her body was found. Joanne's bra and underwear were found six feet from the body, but no other clothes were found and neither were her watch and earrings. Investigators took two plaster casts of footprints they found in the mud. The same coroner who performed Carol's autopsy also performed Joanne's. Joanne's body was in full rigor, leading the coroner to believe that Joanne had likely been dead for over a day. There was petechial hemorrhaging from Joanne's chin to her hairline and also in her eyes, a clear sign of strangulation. Joanne had a superficial wound to the head as well as injuries to the neck and possible strangulation with a belt. Like Carol's autopsy, the coroner found evidence of sexual assault on Joanne. 
the coroner ruled the cause of death as strangulation during an attempted rape. Carol and Joanne's crime scenes weren't far apart from one another. The murders were nearly identical, and both women had been sexually assaulted. Still, this was earlier on in the serial killer era, and there wasn't any evidence that the two women knew each other or had any remote connection to one another. Just like in Carol's case, it didn't seem like Joanne knew her killer either. In the days following Joanne's murder, a possible suspect began to emerge. This man was Calvin Durham, a known criminal who was in Joanne's neighborhood on the day she disappeared. Durham's ex-wife and son lived in the area, and he may have been visiting them on the day Joanne was murdered. In 1950, Durham received a bad conduct discharge from the Air Force. His arrest record included several minor offenses in Kelso, Longview, and Spokane. He even broke out of jail in Kelso. Durham moved to California for a short time and went back to prison while he was there. Prior to becoming a suspect in Joanne and Carol's cases, Durham was accused of rape in Port Angeles, just 30 minutes from where I'm currently recording this episode. Durham came to Seattle to take a polygraph test. Apparently he passed because after he took the test, police no longer believed he had anything to do with the murders. This was also back in the time when polygraph evidence was given a lot of weight. If you passed, you were ruled out. If you failed, you probably committed the crime, at least back in those days. Unfortunately, because Carol and Joanne were probably killed by a stranger, police really had nothing to go on. Stranger-on-stranger violence is somewhat rare, but it also makes for a hard case to solve. There's an endless supply of suspects because there's no connection between the victim and the perpetrator. The only things that Joanne and Carol had in common were their similar ages, 17 and 19, both had been sexually assaulted, and both had been strangled. But they didn't look alike, and they didn't know each other. Joanne and Carol's cases went cold. Seven months later, on April 20th, 1971, six-year-old Bradley Lyons went out to play with his friend and neighbor, six-year-old Scott Andrews. The boys liked to play with their other neighborhood kids in a vacant lot behind their houses. Scott took a quick break from playing to go home and have some cookies. This was around 11 a.m. or so. Scott's mom, Charlene, called Brad's mom, Chloe, around 11.45 to check in and find out what the boys were up to. Chloe told Charlene she last saw the boys walking toward a wooded area near their houses around 11.15. This must have been something that the boys did frequently because neither Chloe or Charlene seemed particularly panicked or worried at this point. But when the boys hadn't come back inside from playing by 5 p.m., their parents did start worrying. Chloe called the police to report both boys missing. Police, neighbors, and the boys' parents immediately started searching the neighborhood for any sign of Brad and Scott. But there was no sign of either boy. There was some speculation that the boys might have fallen in the river, but a few days later, the boys' body were found in the woods near the Royal Hills apartment complex just within the city limits of Renton. Both Brad and Scott were partially nude, but unlike Joanne and Carol, the killer had covered up both of the boys' bodies. That wasn't the only difference. 
Bradley had dried blood from the bridge of his nose to his right ear, his shirt was pulled up to his armpits, and there was a cord around Bradley's neck, later identified as a Venetian blind. Scott's body was found face down with his underwear twisted around his ankles. It looked like he'd been strangled with his own t-shirt. It was found wrapped around his throat, and he had stab wounds to his chest and neck. Similar to Joanne's crime scene, there was a shoe print found in the mud where the boys' bodies were found. Police took a plaster cast of the print as evidence. On April 23rd, autopsies were performed for both Bradley and Scott. Bradley's body was in complete rigor mortis and his estimated time of death was around 5 p.m. on April 20th. Bradley's shirt was pulled up to his chin, but his arms were still inside the sleeves. The coroner found petechial hemorrhaging across the middle of Bradley's face, inside his eyelids, and in the conjunctivae of the eyes, which is the clear membrane covering the front of the eye. There were bruises on Bradley's lips, and the coroner's report stated that the Venetian blind cord had been wrapped four times around Bradley's neck. More petechial hemorrhaging was found in the larynx, epiglottis, and under Bradley's vocal cords, all signs indicative of asphyxia. The coroner ruled that Bradley died of strangulation. As for Scott, his shorts were down around his ankles and his white t-shirt was covered in blood. The t-shirt had been twisted around Scott's neck, then tied in a knot behind his left ear. There was bruising on Scott's left cheek and lips, but there was a major difference from Bradley's autopsy. Scott had three stab wounds to the chest. One had hit his left clavicle, another, nearly 12 inches, or 30 centimeters long, had stabbed through the left lung, penetrating Scott's heart. The final stab wound was just over Scott's left nipple and again penetrated the left lung. Both stab wounds penetrating the left lung and heart were ruled fatal. Scott's cause of death were stab wounds to the lung and heart. He didn't appear to have any signs of strangulation on his body. When Scott and Bradley's parents were interviewed by police, they learned that neither one of them would have gone off willingly with a stranger. Explorer Search and Rescue was brought in to search the location the boys' bodies were found. They were looking for the knife used to stab Scott, as well as any other clues they could find. The search team found a hunting knife in some brush. This knife had a 5.5 inch, or nearly 14 centimeters long, blade with black tape wrapped around the handle. Before investigators could process the knife for fingerprints and blood evidence, a man named John Chance allegedly confessed to murdering both Bradley and Scott while he was in a psychiatric center. Based solely on his confession, Chance was charged with their murders on April 29, 1971, just nine days after the boys were killed. Chance was arraigned for the murders on May 3rd, where he pled not guilty, despite his supposed confession. Police felt they had an open and shut case based on Chance's confession, but the murder weapon was still processed for fingerprints. Traces of blood were found on the knife, and it was determined to be type A blood. When police removed the black tape around the handle of the knife, there was a name carved into that handle, Tom Evanson. Police tracked down Evanson, who was 20 years old at the time. 
While he currently lived in the same neighborhood as the boys, he was in basic training for the Marines in California on the day the boys were murdered. In fact, he'd been there since February 16th. Evanson told police he bought the knife in November 1969 and then sold it to Jerry Triplett in August 1970. With Evanson's alibi and explanation about the change in ownership of the knife, police moved on from Evanson as a suspect. Now it was time for them to talk to Jerry Triplett. Police tracked down Triplett, who was living in Oregon by this time. Triplett told police he was the one who broke the handle of the knife and wrapped it with electrician's tape. He wasn't the current owner of the knife. He'd sold it to Jim Monger, a sixth grader at Knight Middle School. Following the chain of ownership of the knife was exhausting, but police felt that whoever was last in possession of the knife likely killed Bradley and Scott. So they went to talk to Jim Monger. Monger told police the last time he saw the knife, it was in his friend's dad's truck. Apparently Monger lent the knife to this friend and he hadn't gotten it back. Monger tried asking his friend about the knife, but he told Monger his father had taken the knife and he was too scared to ask to get it back. On April 30th, 1971, Monger's friend, Gary Jean Grant, was brought in for questioning. The knife trail ended with him. When police started questioning Gary, he told them he'd left the knife in the woods. Some of the officers noticed that the bottom of Gary's shoes looked very similar to the shoe prints they'd taken from the crime scenes. Police took his shoes to compare to the castings, and they were a perfect match. Investigators had circumstantial evidence piling up, but they also had a man, Chance, who'd confessed to killing Bradley and Scott. They knew they needed more from Gary if they wanted a conviction. So they asked Gary to tell them about his activities on April 20th. Gary told them he worked at a driving range, and after his shift ended, he walked to Renton to buy a new pair of shoes and get a fishing license. He went to a few stores, but didn't find any shoes, so he took a walk down by the Cedar River. This is when Gary claims he, quote, fell in and got soaked, end quote. He walked to a local mini-mart to call his parents, but they couldn't come get him. Gary also told police about his childhood and upbringing. He'd lived with his sister in Portland for a while. He didn't get along with his mom because she was an alcoholic, and he was seeing a psychiatrist and attending group therapy. Despite telling police he'd never hurt children, they asked Gary to take a polygraph test, which he agreed to. Before Gary could even start the test, he broke down. Here's what he told the polygraph examiner. Quote, I saw two little boys walking down a trail and followed them. I approached one of them and told him to take off his clothes. He wouldn't do it, so I hit him in the face. He took off his clothes. I had the knife and I plunged it into his chest two or three times while he was lying on the ground. A few minutes later, the other boy came back over. I tried to block his view of the first boy, but he saw him. I grabbed him and wrapped a piece of line around the neck and strangled him. I wrapped it several times and tied a knot in it. After that, I took off his clothing and put him next to the first boy. I covered their bodies with leaves and vines and then left. I threw the knife away before I left the woods. End quote. The examiner was stunned. This man had just confessed to murdering two little boys in cold blood. The examiner told detectives that Gary confessed to him. 
Instead of finishing the polygraph, officers took Gary back to the station for another interview. Police went over the murders of Bradley and Scott with Gary. They had been recording his statement, but when they went to change the tape over, they realized the first 65 feet of tape didn't actually record. This portion of the tape included the explicit details Gary had described about murdering the boys. With that part of the confession lost, investigators asked Gary to provide a written statement outlining the facts of Bradley and Scott's murders. He would then sign that written statement, which would replace the lost taped confession he'd made. Here is an excerpt from that written statement. After slipping into the river near Maplewood Golf Course, I remember coming up behind two boys on a hill near the Cedar River. There were a lot of trees around, and I began walking northwest of the Cedar River quite a ways. To my right were two boys who looked about five to six years old. I followed the boys for about a quarter mile. We went down a hill to a bog to my left. I followed the boys through the bog. They hadn't seen me at this time. I stayed out of sight and watched them for a minute. End quote. Gary provided more details than he'd revealed to the polygraph examiner. Gary told police the first little boy tried to run away, but Gary was able to grab him. After he stabbed the first boy, Gary heard the other boy walking toward where he and the first little boy were. Gary hid in some bushes on the hill before he came out and strangled the second boy with the cord. Here's another excerpt from Gary's written statement. Quote, it crossed my mind to feel the boy's privates, but I didn't. I left the cord around the boy's neck and I threw the knife away in the woods. I then threw some brush and ferns on the boys. This covered them, but not their heads, end quote. Given that Gary had murdered two little six-year-old boys for no apparent reason, police decided they wanted to find out if Gary had done anything like this before. That's when Gary told police he'd stabbed a girl in the back with a hunting knife. After he stabbed her, he'd taken the strings from her shoes, tied them together, and wrapped the shoelaces around the girl's neck. He claimed he didn't remember if he'd undressed her or not. After he killed her, he dragged the body into some bushes and left her there, laying on her back. He got spooked by a couple, ditched the knife, and took off running. Police couldn't believe what they were hearing. Gary had now confessed to three murders. But Gary wasn't done. While he was in the middle of confessing to the murder, he began describing the details of a fourth murder. Quote, She was laying on her back in some woods. There was no knife. I came up behind her. She didn't notice me. I hit her with something I had in my hand. I hit her in the back of the head. I just dazed her with a rock and she stumbled forward. She started to say something. I grabbed her around the neck and choked her until she was dead. After I choked her, I heard some kids nearby, so I took off running up a trail. I don't remember where it was. End quote. Detectives realized Gary was describing Joanne Zuloff's murder, and the third murder confession matched Carol Erickson's murder. At the time of his confessions, Gary was just 19 years old. Just 19, and he'd killed four people for seemingly no reason. Despite the incriminating statements Gary made about the murders of Carol, Joanne, Bradley, and Scott, Gary refused to admit that he'd undressed either woman or sexually assaulted them. The charges against Chance were dismissed on May 10th. 
he'd spent a week in custody for crimes he didn't commit. On the same day, Gary was charged with four counts of murder. Prosecutors announced they would be seeking the death penalty. Gary had his initial psych evaluation on May 17th while housed in the King County Jail. This evaluation took over four hours to complete. It's through this evaluation that investigators and prosecutors learned more about the young man who'd confessed to murdering four innocent young people. After dropping out of high school, Gary joined the Navy. He was discharged after two months. Gary had worked a few jobs, driving and the golf course. His parents had separated a few times. He again discussed his mother's alcohol abuse and mentioned that his dad made, quote, bad business decisions, end quote. Gary denied ever masturbating. At the end of the four-hour evaluation, the psychiatrist determined Gary had, quote, no evidence of thought disorder, delusions, or hallucinations, end quote. She diagnosed dissociative reaction with a rule-out of psychomotor or other seizure problem. Gary was deemed fit for trial because he had, quote, an adequate understanding of the acts and a moral appreciation of their wrongness, end quote. And this was despite the psychiatrist's findings that Gary had borderline intelligence. She ultimately felt that Gary was legally sane at the time he committed the murders. Gary's defense team tried to suppress his written and oral statements to police and the tennis shoes that were seized by police for comparison to the castings collected at two of the crime scenes. The judge ruled that the written and oral statements given by Gary were inadmissible, but the shoes were allowed in as evidence. On June 28, 1971, Gary's defense team moved to dismiss all charges against Gary because his rights had been violated. Unbeknownst to Gary and his attorney, one of the lead investigators had set up recording equipment in the interrogation room that was turned on while suspects would speak to their attorney. This is a blatant violation of the attorney-client privilege. Two days later, the judge denied the motion to dismiss. Although the actions of one particular investigator were egregious, none of the prosecutors on the case had listened to any of the recordings, and they'd brought in an independent agency, the Attorney General, to handle the case. The judge felt this adequately protected Gary's rights. Gary's trial began on August 12, 1971, at the King County Courthouse. Joanne's mother testified, Bradley and Scott's mothers testified, the coroner testified, and the prosecution played Gary's recorded statement for the jury of 10 men and two women. When it was the defense's turn to present their case, Gary's attorney argued that Gary suffered from split personality disorder. The defense presented testimony of a close friend, Gary's father, and a psychiatrist who stated that Gary had a, quote, lack of mental awareness and a psychological disconnect from the facts of the case, end quote. Gary testified in his own defense, but it didn't really go as planned. He basically went into a trance on the stand. In the prosecution's closing arguments, he told the jury, quote, the only real issue in this case is whether or not you impose the death penalty, end quote. The defense tried to advocate against the death penalty for their client, saying, quote, taking another life isn't going to solve a thing, end quote. Gary's lawyer claimed that Gary was emotionally ill at the time of the crimes. Quote, he had a split personality, 
marked by tender, loving care and unconscious rage, end quote. After two days of deliberation, the jury found Gary Jean Grant guilty on all four counts of murder. He was sentenced to four consecutive life terms on September 29, 1971. The defense's motion for a new trial was denied. Gary's appellate attorneys filed an appeal of his conviction. In July 1973, a three-judge panel of the Washington Court of Appeals said there were no errors justifying dismissal of the charges or a new trial. The Washington Supreme Court denied review of the appellate court's decision. Gary tried one last-ditch effort. His attorneys moved to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court wasn't interested. They denied the appeal on October 15, 1974. Gary Jean Grant is now 69 years old, still serving out his life sentences. I read conflicting information as to whether he's housed in the Washington State Penitentiary or the Monroe Correctional Complex. But either way, Gary will likely die in prison. To this day, he has never provided a motive for the murders. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.